This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about two souls united by the bonds of holy matrimony. That's right. Just when you thought the month of June was over, Story Collider is here to bring talk of marriage back into your life. Back at the beginning of my Story Collider career, I would sometimes hear scientists say things like, yeah, my husband and I decided it was time to start living together after being married for four years. <laughs> and I would be very confused. And what I didn't realize back then is that there's this dilemma scientists and other academics often find themselves in where it's difficult for both people in the marriage to find positions at the same institution or in the same city, especially when you take into account things like tenure or the exact type of science they want to do. So if you have two scientists who are married to each other, a lot of the time that means either they live hours away from each other for years at a time, or one person has to make a sacrifice in favor of the other person's career. Scientists uh, often call this the two-body problem. This is a play on words from a phrase they use in physics. I'm sure that if I understood physics, I think it was very funny. But it always made me wonder... If I had to choose between being with the person I loved and pursuing my dream that I've worked hard for and that's part of my identity, what would I choose? Fortunately for me, I don't have to answer that question. But we have two stories today from folks who did. Our first story today is from Sarah Brady. It was recorded in February 2019 at J3 at Cambridge Junction in Cambridge, UK. The theme that night was family. There we were. My daughters and I had just stepped into the UK as residents for the first time. Our next stop was the luggage. We had prepared for this moment. We had practiced with our daughters, walking up and down our hallway at home, pushing one large bag while they pulled a carry-on bag while they wore a backpack. This plan was going to work until we got to the luggage itself. And both of my daughters started weeping and wailing, and I knew they were going to be no help. So I retrieved two luggage carriers and piled on seven checked bags, three carry-ons, two backpacks, and began pushing my way through the airport, calling out behind me, come on! Keep walking. Daddy will meet us on the other side. When we got through the doors, 
I scanned the crowd, and my husband, Aaron, was not there. I knew I couldn't make it through that crowd of people with all that luggage without knocking someone over. So I looked to my left, and there was a little ledge along the wall. And so I pulled those luggage carriers over to the wall, and my girls and I sat down. They were still weeping very loudly. And I pulled out my phone. There was a text message. It said, the bus is stuck in traffic. I'm going to be at least 30 minutes late. I sighed and typed, okay. That was not the first time I ever had to wait for my husband. My husband's a physician, a pediatrician, and we have been married for almost 15 years, which has included his medical school, his residency training, and his early years as a physician. But when I met him, he was the most on-time person I had ever known in my life. We went through medical school together. I was teaching at a area university, teaching theater and communications, and we were both busy, but we were doing what we loved and supporting each other. And then he was almost through with medical school when I found out I was pregnant with our first child. And then I was offered a tenured position. And that tenured position was going to require for me to do PhD work while residency was looming large in our future with 80-hour work weeks for Aaron, while I was also maintaining my 60-hour work weeks as a professor while having a new baby. The math did not add up in my mind, and so I declined the position and decided that I would, I would take my career a different way, in a performance way, and support my husband and our new child. On Aaron's first day of residency, he had residency orientation, and there was also resident spouse orientation. Now, I wanted to be a good, supportive resident spouse, so I went to this orientation. I was hoping that I would hear things that would help take the weight that I was already feeling off my back. I remember one woman who was asked, she had been married for 20 years to a physician, she was asked, what advice would you give to these new resident spouses? She thought, and she said, be careful when you ask your resident to pick up his socks. That wasn't exactly what I was looking for. And I felt that weight grow heavier on my back. And at the end of the day, when Aaron and I came together, I asked, so did you have any breakout sessions on how to be a good spouse while you're in residency. And he said, no, Sarah, we had a lot to cover. <laughs> and I felt that weight grow unbearably heavy because I knew that both implicitly and explicitly, I had been handed the entirety of the responsibility for the health of my marriage and family for the next three years. 
but I didn't have the words to concisely express my concerns to Aaron until a few months later. We went to a gathering with his fellow training physicians, and some of us were sitting around a table, and reading came up. And so I jumped into the conversation and started talking, and one of his colleagues looked at me. You read? I wanted to pull out my curriculum vita and begin going through it line by line with this person. And then I wanted to discuss in detail my 800 pages of primary source documentation that I was sifting through for my current project. <laughs> But that's not polite dinner table conversation. And so I smiled and said, yes, I read. And I went home and I cried because I had a word now for what I felt invisible. Not as a wife or as a mother, but as Sarah, human being with my own gifts and talents and ideas to offer. Aaron tried to console me. He said, They weren't thinking, just let it roll off your back. And I knew he didn't mean not to understand. But he'd never been invisible. So I started to, to talk myself into encouragement. I said, you know, I can do anything for three years, anything at all. And I started to focus on my light at the end of the tunnel, which was the end of his residency training. And then Two years passed, and he was done. The following Sunday, we went to church together, and we sat in the same place that I always sat, whether he was with me or not. A woman came up to us. Is this your husband? She asked. I smiled. Yes, yes, this is Aaron. This is my husband. Is he the same one? Yes, yep, same husband, only one I've ever had. And Aaron and I looked at each other, and he understood. His first week of working after finishing his training, he was in working in the hospital on days. And It coincided with our older daughter's birthday. We decided that we were going to go out to dinner one evening, and I waited for the text saying that he was on his way home. But it didn't come through. So a few minutes later, I, I, I sent a text saying, Hey, honey, you on your way yet? No answer. I waited 15 minutes and sent another text Hey, you coming this way yet? He replied, I'm going to be late. I sent a text back, How late? It's your daughter's birthday. We have dinner reservations. He replied, I don't know. It's bad, Sarah. And I knew he wouldn't be late if he didn't have to. 
but I still wanted to slam that phone down on the counter. But little eyes were watching. And those little eyes, they wouldn't understand how tired I was of celebrating alone and parenting alone and doing so much alone. So I did what I did so often, smiled, and we celebrated, and we made it through bedtime, and after they were in bed and I heard that key turn in the front door, there was a whole list of things I wanted to say to Aaron. But as he walked inside, his shoulders humped, and he sat down and he started talking, and all I could do was listen. He had been preparing to discharge a child, a child that seemed to have a virus. But as he read through the chart, he got a sick feeling in the pit of his stomach. And so he went to take one measurement one more time. And the measurement was way off, so he took it again just to be sure. And it was still off, so he ordered a battery of tests. And they all came back and confirmed his worst fears. And if he had sent that child home, that child wouldn't have made it even a few more days. And I went upstairs and I kissed my children while they slept and I cried. And I prayed for that other family and for that other mother who would probably never know I exist but who got to keep her child a little while longer because my husband had missed celebrating his daughter's birthday. But I also knew that my light at the end of the tunnel had not come. And we could not go on the way we had for the last three years. We were going to have to take difficult measurements of us, of Aaron, of me, of us as a couple, of us as a family, because a physician can absolutely save a life. But so can a story. And so we started having those conversations you don't like to have and making those adjustments that are hard. And we've kept on through today, having those difficult conversations and making those adjustments, which led us to that moment four years later, a year and a half ago now, when my children and I were sitting on that ledge at Heathrow Airport waiting. And then Aaron was there. He took the whole situation in at a moment, helped lift us up off of that ledge, put his hands on those two massively overloaded luggage carriers and said, I've got this. Let's go get some breakfast. He picked up his socks. That was Sarah Brady. Sarah is a storyteller, teaching artist, and writer who relocated to England from the United States a year and a half ago due to her pediatrician husband's job. To say that science has had an impact on her family would be an understatement. Misha here. 
If you enjoy our episodes on career pathways in healthcare or the STEM field at large, then I have the perfect podcast recommendation for you, Raising Health. Previously called BioEats World, Raising Health comes from leading venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, the same team behind the acclaimed A16Z podcast. Each episode, Raising Health dives deep into the heart of healthcare, biotech, and AI with venture capital investors and A16Z general partners. Along the way, they explore the real challenges and opportunities in health and biotech entrepreneurship. So whether you're interested in building a new digital healthcare company or your company is advancing a new novel medicine, Raising Health sheds light on some of the opportunities and obstacles along the founder's journey. Not to mention, you'll hear raw insights, actionable advice from notable guests like Omada CEO and co-founder Sean Duffy, an AI expert and in citro CEO Daphne Kohler. Don't miss out. Follow Raising Health on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and tell them I sent you. Our next story today is from Ed Greco. It was recorded in January 2019 at Highland Inn and Ballroom Lounge in Atlanta. The theme that night was transformation. I fell in love with physics when I was in the eighth grade. My family had moved around a lot the past couple of years, and I found myself alone at a school where I didn't know anyone. And so I spent my lunches outside in the empty courtyard building paper airplanes. And I developed an obsession uh, with these airplanes and how the tiny differences in the folds and the wrinkles, the tuck of a flap, could cause a completely different trajectory of that airplane through the air. I started to obsess about it. I visited libraries, I looked for books, I unfolded every airplane that I could come across and I just couldn't make sense of it. I was flummoxed. And so my mom did the only thing that you can do with a weird little kid obsessed with airplanes. Uh, She enrolled me in a science and engineering program at the high school across town. And so on that first day of ninth grade, I sat in the back of an old yellow bus about an hour before sunrise, and I saw Elizabeth. She had gotten on the bus, and I remember looking at her, and I wish I could tell you that it was love at first sight, but really I just thought she was cute, and I was happy that there was at least one girl on the bus that day. (laughs) For the whole next year, we spent bus rides together, and I learned that she was intelligent and passionate about science, like I was. She wanted to grow up to be a physician. Uh, And so I would check out these old, dirty philosophy books from the library to try to impress her. And, you know, every day I would inch a few seats closer to where she was sitting with her friends, and then I would wait, and I would interject myself into their conversation, and I would start an argument. You see, she's, she's very confident, uh, and she was one of the top students in our school, so she, she, she was confident in her beliefs and her opinions, and so I would take the opposite side. I would be fluid and ambiguous, and basically my goal was just to infuriate her. <laughs> but it worked. It worked. Uh, and so by 10th grade, we were one of those couples that you see walking around everywhere, holding hands and having lunch and hanging out by the locker. And that Thanksgiving, at her aunt's 
lake house. Uh, she introduced me to her family, and they're holding hands. We said, I love you for the first time. And I remember that feeling because I was filled with just this warmth and this light. And for the first time in my life, I felt a completeness that I had never felt. And after that, high school was a breeze. We sailed right through it. And by our senior year, we had decided that we wanted to continue dating and we would apply to the same schools. And so we visited uh, liberal arts colleges all around the Southeast. And I fell in love with a program out of state and she got an incredibly generous scholarship offer in Florida. I had to decide for the first time that senior year uh, if I would choose my love for physics or my love for Elizabeth. And the tension started to build in our relationship and I got scared. And I decided that I would go to the school in Florida with her. I knew that I wanted to be a scientist when I grew up and I knew for physics that meant a PhD and so I rationalized it. I said, I'll work hard. I'll get into a good graduate school. That's what's really going to matter. And so we started our freshman year of college together. Uh, but I carried with me uh, some resentment and bitterness. And so we had a very rough first couple of years of college. And somehow we hung on, I think, because we both just worked so hard. She was a, a chemistry and a biology major, and I was a physics and a math major. And we had jobs after school. And so we just buckled down. And the summer before our senior year, we were at the beach, and it was sunset. And I proposed to her. And she said yes. And again, I was flooded with that feeling of light and warmth and completeness. And so we started our senior year together with plans to get married right after graduation. She wanted to be a physician, which meant that she needed to go to medical school. and. I was now dead set on a PhD program in physics, and we looked for cities all across the Southeast that had good programs in both. That spring, I got my acceptance to Georgia Tech into their PhD program, uh, but Elizabeth got waitlisted at Emory Medical School, uh, and she was crushed. It was the first time that she had not succeeded at something academically. But we got married, and we went on our honeymoon, and after our honeymoon, we sat down and we came up with the plan. And the plan was that we were going to move to Atlanta, where I would start my PhD. She would get a job. And maybe in a year, she would apply again for medical school. And honestly, at that time, I was kind of blind to the pain that she was dealing with. I was excited and uh, just filled with the expectation of what it would be like to finally be in a PhD program. And she just was kind of tuning out. So when the first wrinkle in our plan came, which was Georgia Tech sending me a letter to say that the married graduate housing was full and we would need to find a place to live all on our own, uh, she didn't want to join me uh, on the trip to Atlanta to look for an apartment. It didn't matter. Fine, I can do that. I'm an adult now. We're going to start this new life in a city far from home without any family. And so I drove up here. Yes, I got confused. The roads are narrow compared to Florida. Uh, there's these things that we have here called hills. 
which meant that you can't see long distances when you're driving down the road. But I persevered, and after two days, I, I called her on the phone, and I laid out all of the options. I'm like, there's this book. It's called An Apartment Finder. And I opened it up. These are the choices that we have. And she said, fine, whatever you pick. Um, and so I, I picked an apartment up off of 400. Um, and I drove home confident. I had, I had succeeded. Things were going to be fine. And I got home. And the next couple weeks are a bit of a blur. But about a week before we were set to move uh, to Atlanta, she got in a fight with her parents. It was a Monday morning. And it was the first day of medical school at Emory. And her mom had called and told her that she needed to call Emory Admissions and ask if someone had failed to show up. And, and maybe she could take their spot. And she refused. And it was a big fight. But eventually, she swallowed her pride. And she called Emory Medical School. And she said, did anyone fail to show up today? And they're like, well, actually, yes, someone did fail to show up today. And if you can be here tomorrow, you can start medical school with the rest of the students. So I was, well, I, I, I was just shocked. I mean, it's like, uh, I had taken my wife's side. I was like, don't call. That's, you're just going to embarrass yourself. But there was this, like, tornado uh, in our bedroom of clothes and toothbrush uh, and maybe a laptop went into a suitcase and she got in the car with her mom and she said, I'm going, I'll come back in a week, we'll pack up and we'll move uh, to Atlanta the next weekend. To understand the next part of the story, uh, you have to know just a little bit, a description of my mother-in-law. A lot of married folks in the audience, I can tell. Uh, when I was little, a, a common playground taunt, and I don't know if kids still use this, was, uh, your mother wears combat boots. Right? Well, my mother-in-law wore combat boots. Uh, she was a lieutenant colonel in the Army's Judge Advocacy Group. And to everyone who knew her, she was smart, she was direct, decisive, uh, but to me, she was domineering. And so the next day, after a day in Atlanta, my wife calls me to deliver the third wrinkle in our plan, which was that her mother didn't approve of the apartment that I had found. It was too far from Emory. And so without discussing it with us, she had bought a condo in Decatur. <laughs> it's OK. We can rent it from her for the next couple of years as we're students. Um, and honestly, I remember that phone call very vividly because I had one of those feelings, uh, just a bristling went through my body. Uh, and I just stood there silent for a minute and, and the only word that came out was no. And she's, I don't understand, what's the problem? And I'm like, we found this apartment together. Your mother didn't discuss it with us. She didn't include us in the decision. We're not going to live in that condo. And I hung up the phone. The next day, we had a repeat of that conversation. I had had some time to think, so I took the moral high ground of it's about principle. 
you could list all of the pluses of the condo. It's closer, it's nicer, it's irrelevant. Your mom will not be making the decisions for us. We're starting on our own in a new city and we're gonna make this on our own with our own decisions. And so at the end of that week, they came back to Florida and I had rented a shiny brand new U-Haul truck. We loaded up all of our wedding gifts and the secondhand furniture that we had collected from friends and family and we got in the U-Haul and we started driving north on I-75. If I was driving, we were driving to the apartment up off of 400. If Elizabeth was driving, we were driving to the condo in Decatur. And so the next six to seven hours were just an argument, fighting and yelling, and I was mean. I, w I, I was, I was just mean. Um, and I said, there's no way you're making me live in that condo. So, if you've never driven north from Florida on your way to Atlanta, eventually you pass Macon, and that's the sort of signpost that you're almost to Atlanta. There's a rest stop there. It's the last rest stop before you hit Atlanta. And so we pulled into that rest stop, and we walked over to those concrete picnic tables under the pine trees, and we sat down. And we started eating the cold ham sandwiches that her mother had packed for us because she knew we would get hungry on that trip. <laughs> but we just stared at each other. This is it, we're making a decision and we're gonna sit here until we make the decision. And so you can just imagine these two young, this young couple sitting at one of these benches and the cars are whizzing by and they're just staring at each other. Um, and eventually we realized that if we didn't decide, we were now living at the rest stop just outside of Macon. <laughs> And in a jolt of inspiration, I remembered that I had a 50 cent coin that I had carried since I was a little kid. I found it, maybe I bought a pack of gum or something in the, at the convenience store, and so it was my lucky coin. And I had never needed it, but I always knew it was there. If I ever had to make a phone call home, I had that coin. It would get me out of trouble. So I took it out of my wallet, and I looked at her, and I said, how about if we let fate decide? I'm gonna flip the coin, and if it's heads, we're gonna move into the apartment, and if it's tails, we're gonna move into the condo. And she just stared at me like I was an idiot, <laughs> but I didn't say anything. And so eventually, she realized that was our only option, and she agreed. So I took the coin and I placed it in my hand, and I flipped it, and as it left my hand, my eyes started to follow the trajectory of the coin. <laughs> and I looked through and I saw my wife's face and I saw it for the first time. And it was red, her eyes were swollen and she had this look of anxiety and fear. And I realized that I had put that there on her face. And in that instant, time just froze for me. And I was standing there looking at her with the realization that for her, this wasn't a fight over who was going to be calling the shots in our marriage. It was her trying to please her mother and her new husband, two people that she loved very much. 
And looking back on that memory, I know that for me, it was about something more. It was rooted in a fear about how I would prioritize the love of Elizabeth and the love of physics. These two loves that I had carried around since I was 13 years old. And how were we going to plan a life with these two different priorities? And in an instant, the coin had reached the, the, the zenith of its arc, and all of these wrinkles in our plan, it folded up like a paper airplane into the realization that I needed to make a decision. And I caught the coin, and I flipped it onto my hand, and I looked at it, and it was heads for the apartment. And I looked at her, and I smiled, and with a lightness in my heart and a warmth that had returned, I said, we'll live in the condo. That day, on the side of I-75, I decided that I would choose her and the love that we had built together. It's a decision that is echoed through seven years of difficult graduate school, the start of two careers, through the birth of three beautiful daughters, and 19 years of marriage. By far, it is the smartest decision that I've ever made in my life. And I will always be the better person for making it. Thank you. That was Ed Greco. For the last 10 years, Ed has taught physics at Georgia Tech, where he has been active in the development of new curriculum for undergraduate students. A native Floridian, he moved to Atlanta in 2000 with his high school sweetheart to attend graduate school, (laughs) as we just heard. When not in the classroom, he coordinates the outreach activities for the School of Physics and serves as radio show co-host Fat Daddy Sorghum on WREK's Inside the Black Box, where he enjoys sharing his passion for science with the Atlanta community. Storyclider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Stephen Puente, Fiona Calvert, Mesa Salida, and Kelly Vinyl. The podcast is produced by Senior Podcast Editor Zoe Saunders, with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to J3 at Cambridge Junction and the Highland Inn and Ballroom for hosting these shows. And to all of our listeners, please know that we at Story Collider love and cherish you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. 
Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.